On our last segment of the Workflow Show, we talked about some things that we are doing, uh, Chessa and Adobe and Bebop and all of these great things that we are doing in the industry to enable us to be able to work wherever we are, whether that be at home or at your parents' house or wherever you might be during the uh, the COVID-19 pandemic crisis. Uh, so now what we would like to do is shift a little bit. We talked about uh, team projects. Uh, we talked about the benefits of using cloud collaboration tools like Frame.io, Iconic, things like that. Now we're going to talk about shared projects, how they differ from team projects, and then we're going to get into uh, how Adobe integrates with a media asset management platform, uh, maybe some discussions about AI, artificial intelligence, and metadata. And finally, we're going to talk about some roadmap discussions with Dave Helmley of Adobe here. So, Dave, let's start with this question. We talked about team projects. Let's talk about shared projects. How are they different? Yeah, so shared projects uh, to be released very soon. On the last episode, we talked a little bit about uh, this new Creative Cloud feature we have uh, called uh, Beta Prime, which allows people to start testing out um, you know, beta, beta features that we're working on, one of which is just about ready to come out is called shared projects. And we battle tested that, um, which is actually a great term considering we used the folks at Terminator, uh, Tim at Blur Studio. Nice. Uh, our team worked on uh, sort of finishing all the different features and getting editor acceptance around shared projects. So what is shared projects? So. For those that are used to traditional editing, like systems like Avid might have, you know, they, they use, you know, what's known as bins. A bin on an Avid system is equivalent to a Premiere Pro project, a .prproj file. And once you sort of, you know, view that, your brain kind of gets around it. But if you come from that Avid world, you might look at this and go, well, I just want to see a view like an explorer view of just all of my bins, aka projects in Premiere. And I don't want all of, you know, the media and all this other minutia to kind of get in the way of what's actually going on and inside of these container files, which are really what, you know, almost like folders, if you will, almost what bins are. So I can look in there and sort of see, oh, well, that was the day one edit with the red cameras and here's how this is organized. So there are ways now using shared project where we can can give you that same sort of experience where I can view uh, like a master project and all of my projects under that in just that view for me to manage what projects are coming and going. I don't get any um, repetitive media uh, trying to load because it's just project data um, and it's really done done well. I do have a couple of people working on videos. Um, I'll give a shout out to uh, Colin Smith, who worked for me for many, many years, is now retired, has a YouTube show called Video Revealed. Highly recommend it. You know, Colin be working on some shared project videos. And I've asked Colin to not only go down this path of how maybe an Avid editor who also has to use Premiere, you know, we're doing a lot of work with Avid these days, not right. another great company. You know, they've got pretty awesome storage and awesome MAMs. Um, uh, wanting to connect to Premiere, and they've got some great solutions for that. So trying to give Avid editors that way to, to look at Premiere um, for what it can do in addition to the tools they already have. But let's not forget the creator. You know, we've got multiple teams um, in, in a building that, that may be just, you know, traditional Adobe or traditional Final Cut uh, editors, that this is just the way they've worked forever, but they have a need to share projects. And so we have to sort of attack this 
um, tutorial, if you will, from a creator's standpoint. So you'll be seeing some videos that will not really mention it in a structured workflow, like on an Avid, you'll have it sort of featured as how can creators use this, uh, this new workflow. So th that'll That's be coming fantastic. and it is blazingly fast. So <laughs> we, can, we can load movie reels in no time flat. Very happy uh, uh, to see this thing finally coming yeah, out. That's great. I think that's something that's going to be very welcome to our listeners. I always like to talk about we have a lot of very highly technical listeners, and you know, I like to make sure that we're speaking to everyone. So, and, and there's videos on it now. By the way, we've released a few on right. shared projects. And by the way, just a shout out to uh, our partners SNS. Uh, SNS released a video with their storage using shared projects and a collaborative workflow. Uh, that, that I think was pretty cool. So a lot of the vendors are starting to come out with that um, on the storage side to really talk about how do we get people working together. And by the Fantastic. way, I, it does not require the cloud to edit. That's the main difference right. between team projects, bounces, project changes up and down um, in a shared environment. Because Hollywood, as you guys know, uh, where this was originally designed for, is locked down. Like those machines are unplugged from the internet. They actually have internet police that go into these studios and when our team worked on Deadpool, um, you know, we had to make sure all these machines are disconnected from the Internet. And, and so this is completely designed with local network names. Um, and I will say for people going down this path, it really helps to have an integrator help you sort of get this thing going, especially with shared storage. So that's where you guys will definitely step in to help these guys out and get it set Absolutely. up. Absolutely. That's one of the big values that we offer is we... Uh, we sort of get and grok and understand and put together all of these different technologies. So shared projects comes with the same marriage counseling features, right, Dave, that we're making sure that we're not overwriting or if we want to overwrite, well, good, we can. Well, good question. Right? And the answer is that actually can't happen. The oh. reason, because, you know, think of it as a... Uh, you know, there's a door that has a lock on it, and uh, basically your spouse is locked out. Now, so, so if you're on a timeline, there are red locks and green locks and different symbols to sort of tell you. So an example might be in a movie, we have several reels or several sequences set up, and I'm an assistant that comes uh, in in the morning. I work a lot with the Coen brothers. Um, you know, they have an assistant that comes in in the morning, sets all the timelines up, right? Gets all this thing going. And then, you know, the brothers will come in to start doing their edits and everything is kind of organized. Well, if the assistant is still organizing and they want to edit, they can see that the assistant has that sequence and it has a, has a lock on it. Now that they wanted to, you can double click on that and get in a read only instance to start by maybe while you're having your coffee or just getting an idea or maybe you're just a reviewer. I can completely do whatever I want with that timeline except change anything. Gotcha. I can bring up another timeline. We call it pancaking, where we have two timelines sort of winded on top of each other. I can do a select all. I can grab clips, drag them down, and then I'm free to manipulate. If there's an edit that I want to start experimenting with, and I'm basically writing my own my own instance um, from that. So again, yeah, this is this is a traditional way of, of locking people out and unlocking those instances and allowing people to do that. And that's a great question you so asked, by the way. It's almost like a sort of infinite versioning in yeah, a way. Yeah, exactly. Like everybody exactly. has their own. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So very and much as traditional to, bin locking. As opposed to there is a current traditional version bin, and yep. like it, you know, can be overwritten and all that kind of stuff. That's yeah. that's cool. Yeah. And and we've tried to make it as 
as simple as possible from, from almost like a project management from a master project. So we're going to open up the whole movie. I do have some broadcasters that I'm talking to about this that aren't traditionally in this workflow where I'm like, well, if you have a lot of segments that have a lot of the same pieces, you know, create a, you know, a March folder, March 2020, when maybe we've got a campaign, I would have normally said March Madness, for example, where we have a uh, an event going on and I want to be able to have a master project where I'm going to be pulling things from different timelines and multiple people all working from the same master file and I can see what everybody else is doing. And then when I'm done, great way to archive, right? You put all that on the yeah. MAM and then maybe next year you pull out that March project again and look and see what's going on and make another um you know, workflow based off of, of last year's work. So there's a lot of different ways to use this, which is why I mentioned Colin's channel at, at, on YouTube, uh, Video Revealed, is to try to get people into those ideas about, hey, I'm not a, a traditional editor, but I, I need to collaborate and, yeah. uh, and work with multiple people. So, right. Nice. And again, in the same, nice. same VPN or the same network instance with no cloud connect. Awesome. So, you, Dave, you mentioned. Go ahead, go ahead, Ben. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say uh, you had mentioned a lot of cool Hollywood projects, and I know Adobe has been working on kind of an awesome lab out there so that you can bring people in and get good feedback yeah. and really polish the tools. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so we we opened up. That's a great question. We opened up as a result of a lot of the movies, you know, working with you know David Fincher on some of his projects, and we have a Hollywood team out there. Um, I used to run, you know, a lot of those teams, but uh, I hired a guy um, actually from from Avid. He was there for sixteen years. A great guy, been with us eight years now, and he is sort of now running all of Hollywood for us. And we have another guy we hired. Uh, from the industry, uh, who actually has an Oscar for Titanic. Uh, he's been helping us for the past 15 years get this off the ground. And since then, with all these movies that we've then released, we've done a lot of things, e even most recently like Stranger Things and, and other really cool projects. Um, we're working with, with Netflix and some of the streaming services. Now we need a full-on Hollywood engineering team and in Santa Monica, not too far from the pier, we actually have an Adobe office uh, in Hollywood with a complete edit bay with movie reels loaded from certain things that we can then battle test ourselves. We may bring in someone from Blur Studios, for example, or maybe someone from Fincher Studio, you know, into um, our office and sort of say, hey, you know, we've been working on this feature for you, uh, like we were doing with Share Project. Let us show you what we've got. And the engineer that's actually writing the feature is physically there giving the demo and then and sometimes in many cases they go yeah that's close yeah. <laughs> so then which is great that's the feedback yeah. we want uh, which uh -huh. is sort yeah. of why we came out with this beta prime is we want more people having an opinion on on what happens so Anyway, so that, yeah. that office has been um, instrumental and a lot of great things are coming out of that office. And it's not only just for Hollywood, but on the Hollywood edit, there are so many things that are time sensitive, demanding. Again, a lot of cases, 90% of the cases, no internet access. So you can't have a lot of these cloud things that you're used to. We need fast storage, fast reels to, to load. Obviously, quality, stability, performance, all of these different things on these demanding projects. I think Deadpool, when that reel loads, it's almost 800,000 clips that come in 
Um, and I've actually seen that whole movie load on the premiere timeline. It's pretty amazing to watch. And I've worked with a good friend of mine, Vashi Namansky. You know, he edited lots of great things. Uh, my favorite thing he edited, by the way, is, is Sharknado 2, um, <laughs> <laughs> which, which Vashi puts it great. You know, um, Vashi's also got a, got, got a great blog. Uh, you know, Sharknado is a, is a series that knows what it is, right, which is right, what yeah. makes that, that, that movie so much fun because it knows just how, how silly and how horrible the... Uh, <laughs> some of the uh, the graphics are on that in a, in a fun way but we do take a lot of these these uh editors um you know very seriously on, on what keeps them productive and there's lots of things out there that happen to people where you know performance and stability so we've really been working amazingly hard to get the message out about you know when things will, will get you into trouble when you're trying to load old projects that's probably a good topic if you guys want to want to talk a little bit about that sort of opening the the sort of legacy uh, projects and some of this new yeah I think it's, it's is twofold that? is is one you know and, and I do talk to engineering I mean I, I spend and I'm on engineering calls just about every day and um, and the thing that makes our team different is we have a direct access to engineering. And right. I don't know any other company. I have very good friends at Apple. I know some great people at Avid and, and Blackmagic and, and, and other groups. But, you know, we have, I just pick up the phone and talk to the guy that is our media formats guy. And it's like, hey, you know, there's this weird thing going on with Canon MXF files with this new camera. And I, I'll usually go out and, and start sourcing materials. Actually, I was just talking uh, to a vendor this morning that'll be coming out with ProRes RAW for their camera. And I was actually testing it this morning before I jumped onto this uh, um, to this call. Awesome. But anyway, as we're working on all these different things, one of the things I like to point out when you're opening up some of those legacy projects, and a legacy project, by the way, we just came out with Premiere 1404 last week. And anytime you see like a dot O something, it means the changes are probably minimal um, that, you know, if you sort of re read the changes versus like a 14.1 or something like that. Right. Um, but, you know, right. one, one example is, you know, if I'm working on a documentary for the last two years, there's this thing I read all the time on, you know, moving to Premiere Pro, you know, Facebook group, which is a really good one. There's some other ones that are out there. Don't ever upgrade a project in the middle of a, well, sometimes you can't, that's not applicable because I'm working on a documentary and you come out with some new feature that is just, you know, like auto reframe. We were going to talk about AI in a bit, but, you know, this way of just analyzing things that are going on or other technologies where I have to have this. So one of the things, by the way, that gets people in trouble is they don't understand um, when they're bringing media in, we create cached files. Uh, by the way, all these systems do. You know, Final Cut creates optimized files. And there's this ways so when you hit the space bar, instantaneously, audio fires up, frames fire up, you know, the AJA or Blackmagic or Bluefish card all fire up. So these, these temporary cache files and longer cache files are created. By the way, this is in addition to audio waveform files that get created. So all these different files get created right. to give you that snappy response. Well, if we've gone in on a new version and we've said, hey, we've now made H.264 or some other codec faster, that means the math has changed. Mm. And one of the things, and I think it's a fail on our part, I'll just say that, we don't actually warn you that you're using old cache meaning that the math has changed. So, you know, I'm certainly lobbying for a way to, to, to go to engineering and say, you know, we ought to warn customers and take them to a preference panel before the project opens and recommend we delete all media cache. 
Just yeah. and there's an option to do that, sure. but but only if there's no project open. So yeah. when I read some of these people that just want to punch the screen, which I totally get, you know, some projects gone wonky, either it's crashing or um, it's just not playing back right or something's missing. When you go in to clean up your cache, you have to make sure no projects are open. And then you'll get, be given a second option called delete all media cache. And when you do that, it wipes everything out. You got to rebuild all that media. So, you know, go get a cup of coffee for a minute if it's a big project. Right. But at least you, you've got clean media based on what I like to call new math for the mm -hmm. codec. So now you're gonna get fast response, it's very clean, versus you know some wonky H.264 cache or other cache that gets created. So we've changed a lot of this in Premiere uh, 14, the 2020 version, about how all of that, while the menu item looks the same, the behind the scenes is, scenes is a much deeper cache cleaning. And again, I'll just say, you know, hats off to Chesapeake because when they call you guys, these are things that you know, right? So when people are frustrated, they should kind of reach sure. out and say, hey, you know, we need some recommendations on best practices for how to do this. And anyway, I would, would recommend you know, going to Facebook. Uh, even if you don't have an account, set up a fake account that basically uh, allows you to get tech support for, uh, for After Effects and Premiere. And, and a good one's called Moving to Premiere Pro where you can just sort of read. And by the way, it's not all pretty all the time. Uh, and let's just face it, it's forums. And we take that very seriously. We actually don't jump in on the support forums a lot because we like user to user interaction, but we have somebody on the team is always kind of watching that. You'll see me chime in every now and then. I actually took some screen grabs and some steps about how to properly clean your cache uh, and and things like that, but yeah. So Great. we've been doing yeah, a lot would, of work yeah, on can... performance and stability lately. But I, I do think that you know as much sort of issues as we had. You know, last year there was some Windows issues kind of here and there. You know, there's people that are scared, by the way, to move to Mac 10.15 and uh, you know a Mojave. And I'm like, you should totally move to to Mojave as soon as you can, and your Mac can run that. What Apple's done with Metal on that yeah. is is just amazing for H.264 playback, H.265, and I almost call it Metal 2. That's not an official name, but that's just what I call it in my head because it has changed so much since we had from the initial days of Metal. It actually is our preferred method on the Mac for uh, for playback, mm -hmm. um, and you'll see that OpenCL has now been depreciated, uh, and it actually we put depreciated, which is a warning to you. Maybe uh, use Metal. And of course, on Windows, you get your choice of OpenCL or, or CUDA uh, to, to get that, that going. But uh, I find, uh, just for people that are curious, you know, Mojave um, on my MacBook just rocks the house. It's great. Even on a, something like a 2017 laptop, it does great versus the new 16-inch that I'm using now um, works, uh, works pretty awesome. So Metal is very similar to CUDA, and um, I think it's what? It's, is, is it Catalina is 1015? Right, Catalina. Yeah, oh, Catalina. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, actually, you're right. Mojave and Catalina are the ones that I recommend. Gotcha. Um, yeah, ten fifteen uh, Catalina. I I totally recommend. At a minimum, I recommend uh, Mojave. Uh, ten fourteen. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. Um, yep, yep. I have two different systems so, that I run all the time. So one, get one rid of those one. Nvidia cards, people. Right. At least well, <laughs> yeah, if well, you're, if by you're Mac. Way, for users that wonder, you know, what is Metal? What is CUDA? If you go back years ago to the Larrabee days, you know, uh, Intel Larrabee, which is part of their graphic system and this consortium to bring all of these 
sort of graphics things together at a sub-level, if you will, in the operating system to make it a first-class citizen in the operating system and make a baseline. That was sort of the beginnings of, of what CUDA finally became because what happened was you know, AMD and Apple, I think, I can't remember all the, and Intel, a bunch of other people were actually uh, in on this consortium. People started to pull out. And in, and basically NVIDIA said, we're just about done. So they just decided to go ahead and release it. So CUDA and Metal are basically the same, can't really say they're the same thing, but they're the same idea to where things are at a, a, at a very low, um, lo low level call, which is why people really want to see that come around. And I think so long as Apple's controlling the drivers on their side with Metal, you'll get really, really great performance. I think a lot of us would have wanted to see CUDA CUDA on the Mac sort of come back, but I think Apple's got enough going on right now where that's that's harder. I would just would love, I mean, NVIDIA knows, I meet with them all the time, great company. Uh, I just love to see them come out with uh, with metal support uh, because people mm, want that hardware. Sure. Uh, yeah, and yeah. I, I will say the AMD hardware has actually been pretty good on the Mac. I don't really have a whole lot of, whole lot of complaints, but I would like to see an, an equal playing ground there for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Definitely. So speaking of that, we've got a new Mac Pro, right? The yeah. 2019 with the crazy afterburner card. Um, yep, yep. Have you guys been playing with that? I've got one right over here that I've been, oh, yeah. that I've been using all the time. Yay. So um, I will say I, I stole it from a friend of mine. Um, just kind of walked would, in would there you, and Would you hold it up it. for the camera, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I can show you that. the black that's, mouse. That's, that's as much as, as I can get. Yeah, we, um, we, we got, got one in, in uh, a few weeks ago and right away just noticed um, how much of a beast it is weight-wise. Yeah. So that was the joke. Yeah, so <laughs> we actually, Beta Prime will be the first way to start testing um, Afterburner. And I've been... Um, Consulting a lot of really good friends of mine that are master trainers in both Final Cut, um, you know, and, and Premiere and Resolve, and we've been testing this, and I I am happy to say, uh, Premiere is kicking ass uh, right now in, in, in my test, and it's Fantastic. I'm only doing 8K. 2997 test. I have done a bunch of 8K60 tests um, just to you know put a strain on it. And really, it's just a matter of cutting everything um, in half. You know, if you can do you know uh, two or three layers of 60, then that tells you that you can do twice as many in 2997. Right. But I am fully seeing sure. you know in, in anywhere from three to four to five layers of of 8K2997. Uh, and, you know, it starts to tap out, at least now. I don't know where this will end up because we're just finishing up testing uh, right now. But my guess is by the time you put a Lumetri on each one uh, at 8K2997, uh, you'll probably be at about, about four layers. So, mm -hmm. if, so look at that in real-world workflow. So if you're trying to do a multicam edit at 4K or even 1080, uh, Afterburners is, is going to do you a lot of good. And I don't know if you saw this last week, Apple just allowed people to order that by itself, which is right. pretty awesome. Right. The rumor is Absolutely. that Apple is going to let some other people develop for it as well, which is really cool. Yeah, and right now it only does ProRes decode, does mm -hmm. not do ProRes encode, and it is a, a programmable processor that I'm looking forward to for some other cool things to come out on that. And by the way, just uh, you know, a shout out to Intel to say, uh, hey guys, I think the Windows users would like to see something right, uh, right. on the Intel side. And I, you know, not to say that Adobe is going to jump on support. It depends on uh, if they can do as, as good a job as I've seen at Apple's done on on Afterburner. Because uh, I will say. It's impressive. 
And, yep, and yep. there's, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly won me over in the, in the tests that I've done. Uh, awesome. And, and hope to get awesome. that uh, front and center for people sooner than later. So uh, you want to talk a little bit about AI? Yeah, yeah. Well, by the way, I did yeah. want to mention one thing that I showed at, uh, at Max just while we were talking about Afterburner yeah. and performance. Um, wouldn't people like to see After Effects go faster? Everybody. Yes. I'm sure, I'm sure nobody <laughs> wants that, Dave. <laughs> yeah. So um, at Adobe Max last fall, that's our, our huge uh, creator conference that happens every fall. Pretty awesome. We have about you know 15,000 people um, show up to that. I held a little uh, you know geek session on the last day uh, that was supposed to be a small session to show people After Effects running in multi-threading environment, which I think a lot of people would love to see. Because today, After Effects really, when they come to you guys, they come to Chesapeake and say, hey, this is what I'm doing. And you're kind of like, okay, well, After Effects, pretty much a single threaded app. We need to sell you as high a clock as you can get. So maybe right. you wouldn't get a 28 core machine, you would get a 16 with a high clock and some memory and a decent uh, GPU card to play um, play the timeline, the composition back that way. Well, now I showed a dual Xeon. I can't remember how many, I think it was 110 uh, threads we had going out on that particular one. And it was hitting all of them at about 85%, just slamming that machine. And it was pretty impressive to watch it chunk it out. And it's gonna be processor independent, so it doesn't make a difference if it's an Intel or a Ryzen or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, it's just looking at threads and cores, and we're working really hard to bring that out um, as soon as we can. So testing is fully underway uh, right now. And again, I, I did show that is probably some tweets out uh, on After Effects. Uh, that, that session I had, which was supposed to be small last fall, had over 300 people, I think, crowding through <laughs> the room uh, to sort of watch that. So I just want to let my After Effects users know that we know that you know speed um, and certainly performance in After Effects is, is front and center on everybody's mind, with, especially with these new hardware coming out. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, that's great. So yeah, you had, you had mentioned really cool. uh, you know AI. So a couple things yeah. we're um, we're working on with uh, with AI. The first thing that we brought to the AI movement, if you will, at Adobe, which is trying to keep the creative alive and getting rid of the mundane crap that nobody wants to do. One of which right. would be if I have a sixteen by nine video and I need to convert it by nine by sixteen the storyline changes. We're also seeing this in new platforms like Quibi that are coming out. And I'm working with some of the broadcasters and other media houses that have to develop two different sizes. And you have to be able to tell a story in a nine by 16 and keeping the talent centered or whatever you, you wanna do. So we actually use AI to read the, what we call salient regions on the screen to find out what's happening. We face track, we object track all these different things to figure out what are we looking at, how should we track it. There's one demo we do where actually we have one of our engineers throwing a Frisbee to her dog and we, we sort of pick up that there's two things on the screen and there's this action that goes in between. So we start off on the human, she throws the Frisbee, we track the Frisbee and we see the dog and we watch the dog go to the person and return the Frisbee. All of that is tracked automatically via AI. And we came up with a workflow that doesn't change scaling and position keyframes from what you already know. So rather than come out with some funky new control that just says, oh, you got to do this and you got to kind of relearn 
how to keyframe that. We just throw all the keyframes to things that you already know, and it's gone gangbusters. I mean, everybody just loves the fact that we've gone down this path. Because I do get asked all the time, is Adobe AI going to get rid of me or get <laughs> rid of the creativity that is me? Um, the answer is no. We just want to get rid of the mundane and allow you to go back in. And we, we don't sure, think that I mean, any AI is going to take the job. You know, you need to proxy that and, and look at that and sort of figure out how to put your own twist on that. And, and, and you're going to noodle keyframes as long as you can before that project's due. So. Right. Yeah, I mean, this whole scenario that you just described here with uh, the difference between a 16 by 9 and a 9 by 16 yeah. frame, that is something that really hadn't occurred to me. I, it had occurred to yeah, me before. Yeah, storytelling is very different. Not that it changes the storytelling, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think that's an amazing example of, I wouldn't call it a new problem. It's kind of a, a new way of working based on the way we are consuming the media yeah. uh, and, and the way consumers are actually consuming the media on their mobile devices. I mean, that's the whole reason for the 9 by 16. Well, so, for users uh, that yeah, know about Quibi, I don't know if you have you looked mm -hmm. at that platform much, but this is going to be a new streaming service that's coming out. I think Katzenberg and others uh, are behind this movement, but um, in this technology, it, it basically it says, you know, I'm looking at my phone this way, and it's more comfortable to hold the phone this way. So as soon as I turn my phone, you know, the phone senses that I've turned it, recenters the video, and basically calls on the 9 by 16 video on the server at that frame without interrupting the audio track. So no matter how you turn the phone this way, the audio remains constant, and the content creators have to pivot on that exact frame, assuming you, you know, you've got the bandwidth to make the story consistent. But if I'm at a football game and uh, I'm at a 16 by nine, and I'm off to one side of the screen, I can see the action uh, maybe over my, uh, my right shoulder. And now when I turn the phone, I have to change that edit. You know, I, I either have to uh, have myself or I have to, to put me at the top of the screen or the bottom and have something, you know, however I'm going to maneuver that. So they have to be able to get in right. and tell that story. And I think that's going to be a very popular format. I think Quibi's off to a very uh, cool start. And we've been working with a lot of clients on that, on that workflow. And a lot of them are using auto reframe as that feature. So, That's really amazing. Yeah, yeah pretty cool. And then, uh, cool. you know, other things around Adobe Sensei, which is our uh, AI platform, you know, trying to look at the mundane, I think we all agree speech to text is PIA, right? So nobody nobody wants to have to deal with that. But it's, right. you know, it aside, seems to be the number one feature that I think when people start to talk about AI and some yeah, of these uh, yeah. discussions that we have about uh, solutions architecture, it's, it's almost uh, an assumption that that in any kind of AI integration is going to include speech to text. Yeah, and all the right. things that go with it, because the thing about speech to text, just for a lot of viewers that think closed caption, which is you know which is just used in the U.S. outside the U.S., we have what's known as open captions um, that uh, are actually much more flexible. But uh, it's not so much about anybody that has an impairment or things like that. It's really more, uh, you know, I'm on the subway and I just want to be able to read it or I'm in bed and I don't want to interrupt someone next to me. I want to be able to hit mute. Or sometimes I just prefer to read what's going on and watch the action and not, not get distracted by whatever else right. is on the audio. So it's really, really important. And I also need to be able to flip languages. So if, I, if it's coming in English, I need to be able to flip it and then have someone proof uh, the Spanish or, or whatever. So, you know, we are we are looking um, at that right now. We've been doing that for a while. If someone needs to do this today outside of what Adobe's working on, you can use a product that I use a lot uh, called Transcriptive. 
uh, by Digital Anarchy, and uh, Jim has done a great job, Jim Tierney, of developing this beautiful platform that uh, has lots of different options at, you know, six cents a minute or less sometimes. So it's pretty cheap to get this working, and it, it integrates with Premiere quite well. Trent's another one. There's a couple of these yeah, uh, services that people, if they need that today, can, sure. can get any types of caption formatting. We're looking at it right now and doing some internal uh, have an internal project going on right now that's uh, just starting to uh, to look at that. So you guys have done a that's whole great. lot of good integrations too, back and forth with Mam folks. Yeah. Um, and I've noticed that there's a whole lot more openness that we're able to get much more information out of Adobe and go back and forth between the MAM platforms, which if somebody's using a media asset management platform as kind of their central hub for collaboration and understanding everything about the assets that people are reusing in projects so that they can manage the assets separately outside of projects, Adobe has been really fantastic about um working the way editors want to work, but then also bringing things right. in and out so that people can continue to use the tools they're comfortable with, but also be good citizens within their larger media environments. And it just makes everybody's uh, lives easier. So awesome. Yes. Thanks for that. Save all metadata. Never throw metadata Correct. away. All metadata right. is important yeah. data. Right. Yeah. Speaking of closed captions, I mean, that. I keep them on all the time just because I want the extra metadata, right? I might not understand a word. Yeah, because you might want to edit it. by word. You might want to search or, or whatever. Right. Yeah. And, and we're, yeah. we're looking at, you know, other technologies. You know, we've shown some of these types of technologies, you know, during Adobe Max. Uh, go up on uh, YouTube and look at Adobe Max Sneaks. Um, and you can get to see the peak of the future. We actually showed Auto Reframe. Uh, that was shown um, last year. Uh, this past Max that we had last fall, 2019, we showed an um remover. I think you and I were talking about that in, in the pre-session <laughs> while we that. were getting ready for this. Yeah, I think um, we all need that. So yeah, it'll it, it'll look at certain things, or maybe it's removing an f bomb, or at least highlighting them, letting me know where we are. We're we're working fast and furiously uh, on some of that technology to really take a look at it, and uh, it, it's really doing an amazing job of analyzing what's going on. And I think eventually with metadata. You know, I've seen some other, you know, sort of internal projects that might get us down to the, the realm of, of a quick auto cut based on what they're saying and what we're seeing. Because, you know, mm. things like shot detection and other things where if I can look at information, look at what's happening on the screen and giving an assistant editor's view. Again, we never wanted to make an, an auto edit and say, you know, add it to the supply chain. It's like, no, let us just take out what's going on here, do some auto cuts on it, and then let you sort of get in there and say, well, let, you know, let me sort of look at this 30, 60, 90 second rendition of, of this and, and see if, if, if we got you in the ballpark of where you want to be. So not really pre-announcing any features, just things that we're thinking about and noodling around with. And some of these things come out of, a, you know, Adobe Mac sneaks where we can get in and start looking um, at some of these things. But I do think, you know, audio is, is sometimes more important than video, certainly in a podcast. But, um, <laughs> where, you know, we just want to be able to clean these things up uh, as quick as possible. Um, yep. And, and, yeah, absolutely. The, and, and get back to creating and not, not the mundane. Right. Right. So much of what we look for 
in an AI integration or platform is is it's information about the content itself as opposed to yeah. moving the content or bringing the content into a platform or delivering it to a platform. It's about the actual content itself. Yeah. And that's just been a task that I think has made the complexities of media management that much more complex because the more media you have, the more data you have and and the more time it takes to get that data in there. And that seemed to be a huge sticking point for a lot of creatives and a lot of organizations. They like they want all the benefits of a media media asset manager, media asset management platform, whatever. But uh, it's that resource of time or that resource of a, of a of a stakeholder, a person to put in front of that and gather all that data. That seems to always be a, you know, a, a thing that's getting in the way of using some of these platforms more effectively. So yeah, I, I think we, we've see. done a fairly yeah. decent job for a lot of the partners out there. We, we call them partner panels. So when you're inside Premiere and you guys have installed a lot of these extensions, as, yep, a, yeah, as, as another thing you know, that allows us to make a, you know one of the panels. So those are the, the squares that you see in Premiere that you can resize or After Effects and other apps. So we give them their own space. It actually connects to their mini application. Sometimes it's a headless app. Sometimes it's a limited scaled down version of just what an editor needs to see. And then you can drag and drop and, and export and do all these different things. Um, you know, we had talked about SNS before. One of the things I like to point out about those guys is um, a lot of the man vendors, um, you know, edit share and the like, and a bunch of these other guys have a way to see the media, look at the metadata. That's all fantastic. Now they're able to add AI on top of that. So SNS has a really cool feature. I was just playing with it that allows me to go out to the server, um, you know, put some information, uh, some files on the server. It can start doing some AI and analysis of those files because I, you know, I, I connect to an AWS instance in the back and it's sending those files up to the cloud in the background and doing analysis on those and then giving me more options in Premiere on what to do with that. And again, we just make what's called our, our APIs or software development kit APIs available to those guys and then they just kind of go crazy with it. Um, again, resulting in a pretty unique workflow for each of those, uh, those partners that work with Adobe. Yep, that's great. Yeah. Um, we were talking about AI. I just remembered that when we were talking about Adobe Max, undoubtedly the coolest demo to see when they go up to YouTube, maybe you guys can give them a link. It's called Project Fast Mask. So imagine you've got someone um, dancing uh, on the street in Brooklyn or whatever, and I just need to pick up the dancer because I want to do something in the background, you know, and I don't want to have to get out and composite that person out frame by frame or use auto tracking. So yeah. we use AI to identify that's a person, I see his legs, his arms, his head, I know what he's doing, and we track their motion amazingly fast and then allow you to separate those two and put layers, you know, confetti or whatever behind the person, blur it out, maybe just a logo to have. And, and when I've shown Project Fast Mask, which is in development right now, to, um, you know, a lot of, of our uh, creative customers in the media space, they go bananas because there's no way you would have time to do that in the past, be able to say, you know, I need to get this quick, you know, maybe there's an advertisement for Coca-Cola or something where I need to put that logo behind the talent. You know, there's no way you're going to be able to do that just given a time constraint, even for something like social media. Well, Project sure. Fast Mask is going to be one of those AI technologies for the After Effects user that just says, you know, this is what AI is to them. Um, so uh, it's something yeah, more interesting than maybe text. So, right. so Project Fast That's Mask. That's great. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Fun. Cool. Well, Dave Helmley of Adobe, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a really awesome discussion. Thank you for this wealth of information that you've imparted us with on remote editing during the, you know, the, the COVID-19 crisis, some integrations with MAMS and AI and just uh, what is coming up soon for Adobe. So that's great. We want to thank you for taking the time today. Yeah, it's great hanging out. Awesome. And I'd like to thank my co-host, Ben Kilberg, Senior Solutions Architect for Chessa. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Jason. The Workflow Show is co-produced by my co-host, Ben Kilberg, and Chessa Sales Operations Manager, Jessica Manthai. Thanks for listening to The Workflow Show. We have a lot of fun producing this podcast, and we want to know what you think. Email us at workflowshow at chessa.com with your stories about media asset management, workflow orchestration, and media automations. We also want your ideas for subjects and topics to discuss in future episodes. If you need some workflow therapy, get in touch with one of us. You can also visit our website, chessa.com, anytime. Thanks for listening, and stay healthy. I'm Jason Whetstone.